for most of you here sitting together this morning, probably not a pastor. Maybe it's not sexual sin that you need to confess, but I trust that the, the emotion of this illustration is not lost on you. And perhaps you consider, as we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now, the consequences of sin. So bear with me as I just read an excerpt from this book. Garrett says, Envision yourself calling together your elders and sitting in their midst, telling them how you have betrayed their trust. See their sunken faces and feel their broken hearts. Listen to them consider how they'll tell the church. Imagine the congregation's confusion and how will it have and how it will affect those who've heard you say so often that Jesus is better than anything else. Imagine how the name of Christ will be mocked in your community and beyond. Then I want you to picture walking out to your car and getting in. Drive down the road near your house and circle your neighborhood a few times. Picture the place where you walked the dog with your children in the evenings. Now pull into your driveway and walk up to the door of your home. Hear the scampering feet of your children running up to you and putting their arms around your legs saying, Daddy's home. See the way they love and trust you? Now tell them to go outside and play because you must talk to mom about something. As you walk to the kitchen where she's faithfully going about her day, look at those smiling pictures on the wall. Remember the happy days you shared together. Lead her by the hand to your room. Ask her to have a seat. Feel your heart scamper and the lump form in your throat. See her eyes ask what's wrong. Then watch her weep as you tell her you've been unfaithful. Hear her wail. See her sob. Watch her fall to her knees in despair. Imagine the phone call to her parents and to yours. Hear the silence on the phone as they take in what you've told them. Imagine the day you gather your children and sit them down to explain why mommy and daddy are going to spend some time apart and sell the house they love so much. See yourself taking down those smiling pictures from the wall and taping up the moving boxes, unsure if you'll ever open them again. And then Garrett asks these two questions. He says, do you see it? Sin doesn't tell you about those days, does it? And although the specifics maybe don't directly apply to you, I trust the point is clear that our sins have consequences beyond what we can even imagine. And that's where we have left David in the book of 2 Samuel, right? Because of that one act with Bathsheba, David has seen an infant son die, a daughter raped, a son murdered, a another son who violates his concubines and who, where we left off last week, has raised up a rebellion against David all because of one simple act. And I sound like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on repeat almost because sin has serious, serious consequences. David is living them. I it's horrifying. Just last week, where we left off, just for a quick 
review. David is on the run. He's fleeing his own son, Absalom. Absalom comes into the city, sets up his own kingdom, and kind of seeks the advice of a couple of counselors. One of them, whose name is Ahithophel, whose advice is regarded to be on par with the very words of God, tells David, hit David while he's down. Come after him. He's weak. He's in despair. Absalom, you have to go after David right now and kill him while you have a chance. But then Absalom also seeks the advice of Hushai. Anyone remember what Hushai told Absalom to do instead? Yeah. Hushai is actually David's ally who stayed behind in Jerusalem. And like Johnny said, he tells Absalom, whoa, 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 take your time. Remember, David is like, Hushai says, a bear who has lost her cubs. He's enraged. He's furious. If you come after him now, it'll be a massacre. So gather your strength. Gather all the men from north to south and come after David on your terms. Remember, Ahithophel's advice was regarded as being on par with the word of God, and yet Hushai's advice is taken because 2 Samuel says that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And we see the immediate impact of Hushai's advice being taken in 2 Samuel 18. So let's turn there together and see the product of Hushai's advice. 2 Samuel 18. Yes. Second Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then David mustered the men who were with him, and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I'll do. So the king stood at the side of the gates while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And you can see how Hushai's advice worked to David's advantage here. Because Hushai said, wait, it gave David time to organize his army. You can see in those first couple of verses, he splits up his army into three groups, sets commanders over them. If there's one thing we know about David, this dude's a warrior. If given an opportunity, 
he'll fight. If you give him a moment to gather his forces and set his army in order, he'll do some damage. And that's evidenced by what we read in the text here. 20,000 of the men of Israel die on this day. But perhaps most notably for us is David's instructions regarding Absalom there in verse 5. Let's look at it again. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. We're reminded here that this battle isn't taking place between bitter enemies or rivals. This is taking place between father and son. It's not like David has a wanted poster that he slaps on every tree in Israel and says, wanted, dead, or alive, Absalom, with the reward. No, 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 no. David has very much that fatherly concern for his own son, and he says, please, guys, deal gently with Absalom. Notice again, verse 5, it's not like he, like, whispers this, and, and no one really hears. We read, and all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Everyone hears this. They heard David say, deal gently with Absalom. And this is significant. Look at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Let me ask you this. How interested is Joab in obeying the king's instructions here? He's not. It's pretty consistent with the Joab that we've come to know and love, if you will, right? He does what he wants. He says, I would have gladly rewarded you for killing Absalom. Why didn't you do it? Notice that this man demonstrates the integrity that Joab lacks. In verse 12, we read, But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. He, he tells Joab, listen, you could not have paid me enough money to go against the orders of David here, right? Even if I held a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I'm not disobeying David. Um, we all heard, he says to Joab, what he said about protecting Absalom. And this guy here, he knows how Joab rolls, right? He says, Joab, even if I did kill Absalom, you would just stand back and let David repay me for my wrongdoing while I really did your dirty work. He said, you wouldn't have interjected and saved my life. You would have been very content to have let me bear the consequences for my actions. And Joab replies in verse 14, Joab says, I will not waste time with like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom, 
while he was still alive in the yoke. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. And what we observed here in these last four or five verses is just Joab being Joab. Right? Remember back in chapter 2, David makes an alliance with Abner that Joab doesn't like. What's he do? Kills him. Here, David has very clear instructions. Deal gently with my son Absalom. What's, what's Joab do? I'll do what I want. Kills him. This isn't the end of Joab's antics. We're going to see another behavior like this even today in 2 Samuel. For Joab's brashness, he is kind of effective. I mean, the last three verses tell us that that effectively ended the battle after Absalom was murdered. Everyone returns to their own home. Israel flees. Judah regroups. And in verses 19 to 30, we won't read those, but what happens is someone has to bring this news of Absalom's death to David. And in an age with no cell phones or email or, you know, real modern communication, it happened by messenger, people on foot running. And so Ahimeaz, one of the priest's sons, seems really eager to bring the news of the battle to David. And Joab, for whatever reason, maybe because he knows that this is not good news that he's bringing, says, uh, Ahimehaz, thanks, but let me send a man from Cush, a non-Israelite, to run ahead and tell David. So this guy leaves, and Ahimehaz still is like pushing Joab, let me run, let me run, let me run. And Joab's like, whatever, go ahead. And Ahimehaz actually runs even faster than this man from Cush, and he begins to tell David, like, a partial truth about the events of the war, conveniently leaving out that Absalom is dead, then all of a sudden, here comes this man from Cush, and he gives this news to David. We'll pick up with his news in verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And this is the second time now in this book that we have seen David in agony at the news of the death of one of his sons. Even when Amnon was killed by Absalom a couple of chapters ago, David is just grieved. And here is the news of another one of his sons, dead. You can tell by David's grief here, he loves his son. 
David even says, I wish that I had died instead of you, Absalom. And you just can't help but wonder, as you're reading the events of the consequences for David's sin, as these things continue to stack up one against another, David, was this worth it? Was that one night on the rooftop when you gave in to the lust of your flesh and committed this terrible sin with Bathsheba? Was that worth it? David, if you could go back and redo the events of that night, would you have done things differently? His grief is unlike really what we see anywhere else in scripture. And and before we continue on with the narrative into chapter 19 here, I want us to pause and consider something. Yes, sin has terrible consequences. I trust that has been obvious to you over the course of the last couple of weeks. You've heard me say it enough. It's been illustrated enough here in this book. Perhaps you're even feeling some of the consequences of your sin to this very day. As I've been talking now for weeks, perhaps there's a sin that you've identified and you're still looking at your life and seeing the consequences from that one event. And maybe it's opened up some old wounds. Maybe you're still a little weary just thinking about those things. Uh, I actually had someone give me a little feedback after the events of the rape and murder and rebellion of a couple of weeks ago that, man, this is depressing. I I totally get that. And when you reflect on this just horrific series of chapters in 2 Samuel, it's not all that encouraging. We see lives broken because of sin. And if we stop and think about our own sins for too long, and the shortcomings that characterize our own lives. Maybe we can get discouraged and overwhelmed as we think about the consequences that must have piled up against us from today until the day we die because of the sins that we continue to repeat over and over and over again. Maybe we're just like in despair, like, yeah, the rest of my life's going to be consequences. So I want us to pause and consider if there is any good news even in the consequences that we receive. I want to ask this question. Does God, I'll say, repay us with the full consequences for our sin? Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we have this idea of God that when we sin, he is ready to just stand over us and smack us with the full weight of the consequences for our sin. Is that true? Is that the teaching of the scriptures? Let's look at the life of David really quick and just consider what the Bible has to say about it. Turn back to chapter 12, the immediate events following that fateful day with Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter 12, this takes place when Nathan quotes those famous lines to David. David, you are that man. The rich man who took 
the one lamb of the poor guy so that he could feed his guest, that's you, David. David had earlier pronounced against that man that he deserved to die. Nathan says, that's you. Look at verse 13, David's response to that revelation. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. We looked at Psalm 51 and David's full uh, confession before God where that's recorded for us. But then Nathan replies, he says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What a sentence. Because Nathan is going to tell David in the very next verse, listen, David, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The severity of the sin that took place is not just like a little infraction, like, oh, David, you messed up. No, Nathan says, David, you have scorned God. Other translations say it is as if David treated God with contempt. It is as if David had just outright disrespected the Lord himself. What David had done here is a serious offense against a holy God, and yet God looks at David broken over his sin here and rather requiring the fullest extent of the consequences for his actions, which in David's case would have been death. That's what David deserved. God says, I forgive you. Your sins have been put away. You won't die. Talk about the mercy of God here. When people wrong us, doesn't it just make our blood boil? If people treated us with contempt or disrespect or scorn, we want those individuals to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. And yet God looks at David and he says, I will not punish you to the fullest extent that you deserve. You deserve death. You're not going to die, David. You say, okay, that's one example. Are there others? Yes. Let's turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Just for a little bit of context here. Ezra returns to Jerusalem after being in exile, and he finds that although the temple has been rebuilt... The same cannot be said for the spiritual state of the people of Israel. Yes, the temple exists again, but people's hearts are unchanged. They're still living in sin themselves, particularly in one crucial area. Look at verse 2. Ezra finds out that they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. What's happening here is that these people are intermarrying with Gentiles. Not a huge deal to us, right, to intermarry, but for Jews, a huge deal. God tells Moses in Exodus on the mountain, do not intermarry with the Canaanites. This is what has, this is what has taken place here. Look at Ezra's response to this revelation. Verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And he immediately starts praying. Look down at verse 6. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. 
My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. Ezra says, we know what it is to face consequences for our sin. We are in exile right now as a people because we have sinned against God. We are living the consequences of sin against God. And by intermarrying, we are only compounding our sins. It's like we haven't even gotten the point. But notice what Ezra says down in verse 13. He says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Obviously, the key phrase of this verse is right in the middle there where Ezra says, God, you have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Ezra knows that full consequences for their actions here is for Israel to be totally wiped out. They have sinned against a holy and a just God, and fair or just is all of them gone. And yet, Ezra is able to say that God has punished them less than they deserved. And in fact, he's actually been good to them in God giving them a remnant. God preserved a small amount of people who were allowed to return back to Jerusalem. And not only that, God worked so that the king of Persia paid for the rebuilding of the temple. And Ezra looks at what God has done and he says, you've been so good. I can't help but think of Uh, The lyrics from the song we sing, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We've seen two instances now in which people deserve something terrible. God gives them less than they deserve. How about this one? I'll throw it up on the screen for you. Psalm 103 verse 10 just comes out and tells us that God does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Here is how I like to think about this verse. If we have two sins that somehow correspond to two consequences, then God says here that although you are deserving of two consequences, I will not repay you in full measure of what you deserve. Isn't that awesome? How about the rest of this passage? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. We're told about the character of God here doesn't repay us 
according to our iniquities. He knows we're dust. He, he has realistic expectations of his children. And doesn't these truths that we've considered in the Old Testament about God not giving us what we deserve find its fullest realization in the person of Christ? Th this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 3 when he talks about how God in his divine patience, in his forbearance, he passed over former sins. When you read the Old Testament and you see some of these sins that are on display that are horrific, you may wonder, where is God's justice, right? How can like genocide happen on a scale like this with some of the Canaanites and the wickedness just prevail, all of these perversions and idolatries and sexual, you know, immorality? Where is a just God in all of this? And Paul is going to conclude that God is just. He was just just at a later date. When he poured out his wrath on sin. Not on these wicked people of the Old Testament. But on his son. And so in the truest sense. No one is getting the fullest consequence of their actions. Because for us, when we sin, there are eternal consequences. There's hell. There's separation from God. And yet if you're in Christ, we're told, you will not face the worst consequences for your actions. God is so merciful. We, we saw that on display in these Old Testament passages of Scripture. We see it most fully in Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, yes, there may be some consequences of our sins that to this day still follow us, and yes, they're unpleasant. But the good news is that you will not receive the fullest extent of what your actions deserve. You have been delivered in Christ. I hope that excites you. What God has done. We see it on display for us here. Second, I want to address briefly just a lie that perhaps we have come to believe, perhaps as we've talked about the consequences of the actions of our sins, you've just sat here and thought, I have done something that God cannot forgive. There is a sin present in my life that has disqualified me from service to God. God won't use me, perhaps worse, God cannot use me because of the sin that exists in my heart. Can I just tell you that that kind of thinking doesn't find a whole lot of credibility in the scriptures? I mean, people who wrote the largest chunks of scripture are murderers. Think about Moses, uh, the Apostle Paul. God makes a habit of using sinful people who are repentant. Think about Peter, <laughs> literally denying that he knows Jesus. God says, I'm going to use you even after that event, to do great things in starting the early church. 
none of us are too far gone. There is no sin that has disqualified us from being effective ministers for the Lord. So, so I hope that even in this, what I'm sure has been a bit of a heavy couple of weeks now of sin has serious consequences, sin has serious consequences, you've just been able to see they do. That is the teaching of the scriptures. But in Christ, we've been delivered from the greatest consequence. And that there is still hope, even in sin, of God choosing to use broken people like us. Let me just round out this section with one final verse from 2 Timothy. Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. This is awesome. Because all of us still have days in which we wake up and for whatever reason, the tug of sin is especially strong on our hearts and we find ourselves slipping back into things that we know we shouldn't and we're unfaithful. And yet in our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. It's almost like he has no other choice. He can't deny himself. It'd be against his nature to well, you treated me wrongly. Okay, I'm done with you. No, that's not how God treats us. That's how we treat other people. That is not how God treats us. Let's turn back to 2 Samuel 19 and very, very quickly finish up the narrative here. Second Samuel 19, I'll just go ahead and describe what takes place in the first several verses. Um, David is just still, I mean, you saw his grief saying, Absalom, Absalom, my son, I wish that I had died instead of you. He's still grieving in chapter 19. And Joab, in essence, says, get a hold of yourself, man. Like, by demonstrating grief in this way, David, you are communicating to everyone who is still loyal to you that you don't care about them. That you would almost rather have had Absalom live and all of your loyal followers die. You would have been more pleased without, with that outcome. David, if you, if you continue mourning like this and showing everyone who still is faithful to you that you don't care about them, they're going to leave. Not bad advice, and so David does collect himself, and he is available for the people, and it, with Absalom dead, it kind of leaves the state of Israel in a, a weird, like, middle ground. I mean, they have obviously thrown off the kingship of David. Now their King Absalom is dead, so what do they do? The ten tribes of Israel start whispering amongst themselves, like, maybe it's time to bring David back. Maybe we reinstate him as king, but no one really takes any action on it. It's a little awkward, to be honest. And eventually David takes the initiative and he tells Judah, he says, hey, you guys are my family. You guys make me king. Everyone seems to be putzing around, like not sure what to do. Judah, you, you come get me and you make me king. There's one verse that is particularly noteworthy in this first large section here. Look at verse 13. David says to Amasa, he says, are you not my bone and my flesh, his relative? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. You think Joab's going to take kindly to that? 
someone else getting a promotion over him? Probably not. We'll see about that in a couple of minutes. And as David is being brought back to Jerusalem by his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, he starts running into some familiar people. Uh, all of a sudden, here comes Shimei meeting him on the road. And if you remember from last week, Shimei is the guy who sees David leaving the city, and he's throwing stones at him, he's throwing dust at him, he's yelling these insults, and now you can just imagine, like, Shimei is like, this is awkward. David is the king again, and he kind of comes back to David with his tail between his legs, and he's like, eh, remember everything I said? Sorry. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, we'll look at uh, verse 19 and 20. And Shimei says to the king, let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows I have sinned. Abishai actually wants to kill Shimei, but notice David's response in verse 23 at Shimei's humility in coming back and repenting. Verse 23, and the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. We've heard that same pronouncement already today, right? Nathan tells David on behalf of the Lord, the Lord's forgiven you, you, you shall not die. And here David is telling someone who has offended him, I'm not going to kill you, Shimei, even though Abishai wants me to, trust me. I'm not going to require that of you. And you can't help but wonder if David is learning that he is the recipient of great mercy himself and that in turn he can show that kind of mercy to other people. In the final verses of this chapter, David continues to run into people he knows. Here comes Mephibosheth. We looked at this last week. Um, he comes to David saying, hey, I got left behind. I didn't desert you. And then he runs into another guy. You can see in verse 31, his name is Barzillai. David is really kind to this guy as well. And, and that's pretty much the rest of the chapter. When we come to chapter 20, there is this guy, Sheba, who's introduced in verse 1. Look at how he's described. There's a, he's a worthless man <laughs> named Sheba. And, and he decides that now is a good time to lead a rebellion against David. It's kind of a strange set of circumstances. I think what's happening here is that Israel, the 10 tribes, are a little bit salty that although it was their idea to bring David back and reinstate him as king, they weren't asked to do that. Only Judah was. So they're a little perturbed about how those uh, situation, how that, how those circumstances uh, arrange themselves. And so Sheba, Sheba thinks, okay, David, if that's how you're going to treat the 10 tribes, then we're out of here. And he leads a revolution against David, and the ten tribes of Israel follow him. And all that's left for David is Judah. And, like, here David is. He literally just squashed a rebellion. He's on his way back to be the king, and someone else raises a rebellion against him. It just seems like craziness going on. Look at verse 4. David tells Amasa, his new general, to rally the troops. Verse 4 says, Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time or those three days that had been appointed him. 
And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do to us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to a fortified city and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in, it, in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Honestly, I can't say we're too surprised about Joab's behavior here, right? This is just who he's proven himself to be over the course of this whole book. He kills Absalom not two chapters prior to this against David's wishes. Here he is killing Amasa, this guy that was promoted into a position over him. Can I remind you of some of David's last words to Solomon when he instates Solomon as the next king of Israel? He actually has instructions for Joab. He says, Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, notice, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So David knows that Joab's behavior here is unacceptable. This is not like normal rules of warfare where you kill someone without consequence. What Joab has done twice now to men better than himself is he's killed them in cold blood. David doesn't forget, and, and he actually instructs Solomon to enact vengeance on Joab. And that is chapters 18 to 20. David is able to squash this rebellion that Sheba raises against him, and he is instated as king again. But I hope this lesson was just encouraging to you as we thought about the consequences of our actions and God's response to them. God is so inclined towards mercy, and that is most evident in his sending his own son to really bear upon himself the full consequences of our sinful actions. I hope that was encouraging to you, even in the midst of what can be kind of a dark several chapters of the Old Testament. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for Christ. Uh, you have been so good to us. Like David, we sin regularly. We, we probably don't even do due diligence in thinking about our sin and, and how much of a just utter contempt it demonstrates for you and for your word. Forgive us for our callousness with sin, Lord. We understand that we probably are facing some consequences for our sins. 
That's what happens. But thank you, Lord, that in Christ, there's no fear of eternal judgment at your hand. Thank you for your mercy and not giving us what we deserve. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.